This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Last September, we invited Amal Khan to The Bunker to talk about conspiracies, including QAnon. At the time, we thought that QAnon might be a slightly marginal, albeit fascinating issue, even if a lot of Republicans profess to believe in it. But if I'm honest, I was still amazed when on the 6th of January, that peripheral movement became the centre when Trump's supporters, responding directly to his command, stormed the Capitol, and many of them QAnon believers. One of the most visually memorable sights of that awful day was Jacob Chansley, the so-called QAnon shaman, in his animal horns and furs, his bare chest covered in tattoos, and one of the most visible tattoos, which will have been seen by millions of people worldwide, was a sort of stylized symbol which looked like a cross between a swastika and interlocking triangles. And that is the symbol of Valkism. Valkism is a religion. It's a religion which has been created by its believers in a small number of years. And it's a religion that began on a video game. And there's something that seems so extraordinarily 2021 about all these things that I thought it would be worth bringing Amil back to the bunker to help us understand what the hell is going on. So, Amil, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thank you very much, Arthur. It's great to be back. Great to have you. Amil, so let's just get straight into it. I've tried to explain the context here. You've got this QAnon shaman guy. Everyone's seen his pictures, and he had this very prominent tattoo on his chest. And this this supposedly represents a sort of a, a video game religion. Can you try and explain to our listeners in a sort of brief but comprehensible manner, what this is. Okay, so I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the best I can on the brief and comprehensible bit. In the world of computer games, there are a type of computer games that can be what's called modded, which means modified. And it means that users make different versions, modifications of the game. And these tend to be, it happens on strategy games. And these strategy games, you know, in the great traditional grand strategy are about countries and ideologies and people negotiating and fighting wars. And it's an entirely immersive experience for the players. People play them for days on end sometimes, and you get you can get lots of people playing them on the internet. And a sort of subsection of this is that people can create their own world. And it's an amazing, like you said, a very 2021 sort of a thing. It's collaborative work. People do it together. 
they build so if, if the the one that we were looking at is from a game called Hearts of Iron, a model is made that takes history and then sort of um, uh, sort of has a juncture of history and imagines a whole new sort of parallel universe. And the idea is around the Second World War, it's around uh, Hitler going off the scene and other people sort of coming and taking the reins of what could have happened with Nazism and over the Second World War and European history around 1940s. And in that world that that was made by these these guys playing and developing this game was a version of Nazism which they called Valkism. And the kind of people it's attracting to play it are in some cases very normal, just people who are into games. But some of them are also people who are playing the game because, yes, they are interested in computer games, but they're also interested in an alternative world, an alternative universe, an alternative history that they can kind of direct, that they can temper to their ideological viewpoints and see how it turns out. And that was where Valkism came from. So if I've understood you correct, there are there are people who are they've engaged with this world, they've engaged with the sort of ideas that exist inside this world, but they've taken these ideas out into their real world. And in some way, they're still living by that ideology. Is, is, is that, I mean, is, is that what is happening? Is, is this a normal religion in the way that people are practicing it, even if its origin is abnormal? I wouldn't, it's not, it's definitely not a normal religion in the sense that we think it's religion. It's more, I think it's it's a lot more tongue in cheek than normal adherence to a religion. It does come into the real world though. So the context that we were, where we first came across it, it actually did have a very, very serious real world impact, which was where we found that people who came from so the so the online space tends to curate activity and that is happening here but it's it's also it's happened we've seen it you know over the last 20 years in many different contexts so people come together they kind of see each other they bond over something and they refine their ideas they plan sometimes they do things and then at some point it spills out into the real world either by accident or on purpose or just because it outgrows its online space in this case, what we saw was, uh, I think it was the twenty-seven. I think it was a twenty-seventeen German election, and people from this world of computer game players with Valkism and an alternate Nazi universe and all that kind of stuff were organizing themselves to campaigning for the uh, German uh, hard right alternative for Germany party, and they were directing each other they were like gathering resources whether it's funds or getting people to send emails to reach out to people campaign basically based on the fact that they that there was an audience that was into this computer game and into this ideology and they were if they were into it they were probably likely to be supporters of this uh, hard right party and therefore that's a good place to start recruiting people to help the hard right party do well in elections. And it did have an impact on those elections. So, I mean, I suppose in some respects, there's something quite conventional there, which is, for example, a mainstream centre-left party might, you know, have internet advertising, which is directed at people who have an interest in, you know, social policy or, or green issues or something. And they would they would likely find an overlap with their own ideas and their own, um, you know, their, their own agenda, and I suppose you could argue that that's similar. That if you're if you're inspired by a 
Nazi parallel universe, you're probably quite likely to be interested in hard right politics. But I suppose what's interesting to me, at least, is to try to understand to what extent does Valkism become something that people in the real world are sort of pursuing and acting out? Because clearly the the QAnon shaman cared enough about it to sort of plaster it on his body. But maybe that was just, as you say, a slightly tongue in cheek uh, exercise. What's your sense of that? I think it's on one level, yes, there's elements of it that are quite similar to what we've seen before. But I think there's something fundamentally different. And it's not specifically about the symbolism that's being used, but I think it's the way people organize. So you could argue for a long time we have organized for, for centuries now around political parties that are kind of right, left, labor, conservative, liberals, whatever. And it tends to be a, a hierarchical, top-down sort of structure that we have. And our world is organized in that way. But it feels increasingly that people, and particularly younger people, are flocking to or or naturally organically organizing around more bottom-up ways of structuring their relationships and finding like-minded people and collaborating. So in the same way, I would say that, you know, we've all gotten used to, a lot of us have gotten used to Google documents and we collaborate on a document, we throw things together and then we sort of think about it and people from different uh, bits of a company or across different organizations can collaborate. Well, there are also other ways to do that, and not necessarily in our working life, but also in our in the way that we um, spend our free time or, or you know, sports. Sort of, it can be argued that you know, gaming is a type of sports. I mean, you know, it, 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 it has people who are get, get paid a lot of money to do it. So these people are sort of coming together, and the hard right sort of ideology is part of it. And in one sense, obviously, one of the great things about the internet is that it helps nerds find their own people. And so, you know, it's easier for people might be less lonely because there is somebody who is equally interested in whether Oromo cultures are important in a certain way. But if we come back to the sort of 6th of January event and the QAnon shaman, it's what seems to be interesting here is the way that people can create a new kind of ideology, an ideology that might have its origins in a fantasy computer game where the Nazis are have won the war or something like that. But they can actually t- translate that into real-world activity, whether it's campaigning on a German election or an attempted uh, insurrection in Washington. So what what's your sense of how these kind of uh, online communities, how, how they can manifest themselves offline in the real world? And then my second question, which relates to that is, do you think that governments and sort of security agencies really understand any of this? I'm sort of of the opinion that now the way these people organize and the, 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 the amount of people that will get doing this, particularly if you think people under 30 or under 35, they are perhaps, just in terms of numbers, more mainstream than our mainstream. If, if you have fewer people you know, watching the BBC at six o'clock every day to think about politics. What is the mainstream and what is uh, the minority? What is the kind of uh, fringe uh, section? And I would say that increasingly it's becoming like those those kind of online interaction, particularly in the pandemic, I think has really shown that up, that that, that, that is becoming the default way that we as human beings and groups of human beings are interacting with each other. So if that's the case, then there will be points at which a mobilizer, as has always been the case, you know, and is still the case and is, in the, is the case more generally, can 
reach into that and go, right, guys, you know, this thing that we're all really into, you know, we've got an opportunity here to do something about it in the other world. And they can, you know, get people behind them on an election or raise money. That's something we see a lot in our work, sort of hard right uh, uh, groups or Tommy Robinson type stuff raising lots of money. And they're still mostly organized online. So I would say there's plenty of opportunities for them to do that. And computer games and computer gaming, if you just look on YouTube and see the amount of people you get on Discord servers and even on YouTube, just regular YouTube, um, it's just massive. It's humongous. And it's international. So it is much more... That's what I was saying about mainstream and, and the minority. It's like the, we as people are now operating beyond borders, whether that's Bitcoin, whether that's our interest in TV. Our, we, you know, we operate, we talk you know, without thinking about the actual you know, political borders so much. So maybe the way these guys are doing it is much more you know, organic, if, the, if that's the right word. And so in, case, in terms of how do... Uh, governments or uh, security agencies, do they have? I don't think so particularly, but I bet you that security agencies and governments have loads of people on staff who are under 35, about give or take, who just naturally get this world and know about it. But it probably doesn't come into their work very much. You've worked in the past in, in the kind of field of the kind of uh, combating radicalization, uh, preventing violent extremism. How do you think this phenomenon affects that wider debate? But and also, you know, drawing the lens out slightly, you know, there is clearly a problem with violent white nationalism in the US. There may well be a problem with it in this country. Um, what do you think are, are the kind of learning points from the experience of, of trying to deal with, you know, an earlier generation where the focus was perhaps more on, on Islamist uh, violence? Having worked in counter-extremism and extremism, and looking at extremism and investigating it, um, I would say that there's things to be learned on, on, on sort of opposing sides of this argument. On one side, I think... Um, extremism as a practice, counter-extremism as a practice in the UK and the US, particularly probably more so in the UK than the US, saw extremists as essentially a foreign problem, if we're going to be general about it. It's a foreign problem that's happened to end up on our shores. Um, but it's about whether whichever whichever sort of end of the political spectrum you're on, it's about bad authoritarians abroad or it's about a bad or it's about a it's a defective deficient culture or religion but it's essentially somebody else's problem and we're kind of having to put up with it because people travel around a lot now and we've got people of different cultures and religions in our country quote unquote and i think one way or another it kind of what even if people didn't say it was tacitly in you know sort of systemically seen as that i remember being in a meeting and saying just sort of offhandedly that essentially we're looking uh, at a British problem, um, not as a foreign problem. And what I meant by that was it's a problem that feeds off issues we have at home, which aren't really from anywhere else, but they're about our income inequality, they're about our lack of social mobility, they're about you know, all the kind of issues that we have. And and but there are narratives that people can, that are sort of international and are floating around that people can latch onto to express or find voice for their for their frustrations their issues or even mental ill health or whatever. But these are essentially things that we have to look at as organic, our issues or just, just issues that, that the world is facing at the moment. That, that initial just comment I made without the explanation went down like a lead balloon. 
It was, no, 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 this is somebody else. It's like, what are you saying? The, the idea was that we have something as in a, a, a white English, British, European, Europeans are quote unquote idea. This, we are stable, sensible, rational, peaceful people, cultures, religions. And then you've got nutters from somewhere else. And I think what happened on January 6th sort of showed that that's not the case, that a lot of these issues are, you know, beyond a particular race or religion or culture. Um, and they are about those kind of wider issues about people's frustration and happiness, exploitation of those feelings as well. They might be expressed in different ways, but they essentially come from same sort of place and the same drivers that we have that are international. And I, I think that's, that's not really, that's going to take a while. And I think in America, that'll particularly be difficult pill to swallow. Yeah, I, it, particularly because it requires them to look at some of the difficult sort of facts about their own society. But one of the things you mentioned there, which I think is worth picking up on, is this idea of narratives, because that takes us back to Valkism and also, you know, in the context of sort of the, the Islamist, the Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State single narrative, which for a while, you know, was very effective, where Muslims from all different parts of the world could be persuaded, and in, in you know, some some examples they were persuaded, that there was a kind of global conspiracy against Islam that was being pushed by the USA and Israel and the UK and so on. And it seems maybe that there is now kind of an emergent single narrative on the right, which is that there are sort of liberal elites that control governments, control the media, that control the big industries, and sort of ordinary, you know, stout-hearted, um, decent people are kind of somehow shut out. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that none of this is true, but that, that does seem to be an increasingly sort of powerful narrative. Is that something that you're seeing in your work that is, being, is sort of being actively pushed as a kind of grievance narrative? Yes, we do. We, in, in our work, we do research uh, online, different sort of online spaces, we are often struck by the similarities in the narratives and that the stories in the sense that the, the peculiarities of them might be slightly different. The actors might be different or the context definitely be different, but at their heart, they are about uh, going back to a purer past about a, an us and a them. And the them are pretty much every time, outsiders or even people of ourselves who have sold us out the selling out thing is big so big you know very very big i know as you know in um, amongst uh, muslim communities whether at home or abroad but also now we we can see that you just have to hear some of the maga stuff and about how the uh, democratic elite are outsiders because hey they speak french some of them speak french and they drink cappuccinos not nescafe so these kind of signifiers and markers of being not of us and that we are being prevented there's a natural there's this idea of a natural state uh, either ordained by god or or racial superiority which is i think sort of immaterial with what it is that ordains it. The, the point is that they feel that there's this natural natural state of affairs that is being circumvented or undermined by the machinations of evil people and if we think about it in those terms it's very similar to the kind of stories you'd hear about you know, the anti-Semitic um, stories of uh, you know, Jewish persecution in 
in the Middle Ages. The blood libel. The blood libel, exactly. And you'll see similar. They they have that same sort of three or four top lines that uh, and the, the same contours wherever you're looking at them. And I suppose then a final thought, are we going to see more people like the QAnon shaman who sort of outwardly display their sort of faith in Valkism in a public way? It's not just something they're doing online in a sort of private way, that it's actually going to become, will it become a thing that we recognise in, in, in our real world in, in the coming years? I think if I was going to get my crystal ball out, I would say that there will be many more ideologies, political beliefs, basically points of uh, loyalty that will affect our real world that the mainstream, whoever, that, the, 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 the people that make the rules, let's say, don't know about and don't understand. It'll be, uh, uh, knowing them will be like a very niche practice area. And there'll be stuff that will come across that I will have no idea about um, and other people will, but unless policing and and um, security, you know, really up their game. Um, chances are that they will just be constantly stuff that just goes over their heads. The police and security might go over their heads, but it won't go over the heads of the bunker listeners because we've got Amil to tell us about it. So, Amil, thank you very much for joining us today in the bunker and uh, helping us to understand the new world that's that's developing in front of our eyes. Thank well, you. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for listening. And there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel podcast on Tuesdays. You can get each podcast early and without adverts, plus our stylish Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>